0: Back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Selwyn Griffith, uh, the head strength and conditioning coach at the Melbourne Football Club. Selwyn is a strength and conditioning coach and osteopath with expertise with elite athletes to enhance their physical and psychological qualities, highly experienced in accelerated reconditioning strategies and return to play performance. Before working at Melbourne Football Club, Selwyn was a performance and head of rehabilitation coach during his eight years at the Brisbane Lions super excited for this chat thanks for joining us uh, guys remember to send through your questions we'll have a Q&A at the end of this chat before we invite Selwyn on for the episode 38 our pu- our mission here at prepare like a pro is to empower athletes and aspiring staff with practical knowledge with some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community if you like the show please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to us, we're on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bear with me. I'm just going to invite someone over now. Here we go, guys. Hi, hey, Very good. Thanks for jumping on. Great backdrop.
1: No, thanks for having me. Yep, yeah, in the in the capital, of Canberra. So they've turned on the weather for us today, which is nice.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll dive straight in. We've got a few fans jumping on, so we'll. We'll get straight into it, mate. Take us back to the, the very beginning. At what age and when did you discover you had a passion for the fitness industry, strength and conditioning, and, and you're in Austria as well, so the medical side of things?
1: Yeah, so I've always enjoyed playing sport, grew up playing basketball and Australian rules football in Melbourne. And like majority of SNC coaches, whether it be injury or just interest in um, continuing to explore the performance aspect basically found myself towards the back end of high school looking at what my opportunities were or options were and I actually had quite a lot of back pain playing basketball throughout the end of my high school years and had seen chiropractors physios and then actually went and saw an osteopath, Nick Brasher, who is actually still working in Australian Rules Football at the moment as an osteopath with Collingwood Football Club. So yeah. Nick, Nick was an osteopath near where I grew up and treated me. And actually, one of my best mate's older brothers, Dan Comerford, was also an osteopath. And so there was a little bit of a personal connection there with, I guess, osteopathic medicine. And so at the end of my high school, I started an osteo degree at RMIT Bandura and that kind of started my journey in I guess the the medical and performance aspect. I was still playing AFL on the side, and then towards the back end of my osteo degree, I actually sustained a broken wrist, ruptured scapho lunate ligament, fractured mm-hmm. uh, triquetrum ulna, basically wrist reconstruction, which then uh, resulted in go- yeah resulted in golden staff and about ten days oh. in hospital and ne- never played footy again, so that was fourteen years ago or so now and so pretty much knew my, my journey in professional sport or, or any form of sport was done from that. But then also it forced me to kind of broaden my horizons in regards to, I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to do manual therapy for, for 30 years based on, on the wrist injury as well. So with basically having a wrist fusion post the Golden Staff, there was, once I finished my degree, I, I basically looked to broaden my horizons in performance and and that's where I just started pretty much every month whatever I was earning as an osteopath I reinvested into my professional development so every every month or second month I was doing a professional development course whether that be in, in FMS or SFMA or EXOS Athletics, Perf, Athletes Performance as it was about 12 years ago when I was starting that journey and that really just yeah started my interest more in the performance realm as I was I guess developing my skill set as an osteopath, which wouldn't change at all, because I think the medical foundation that I I learned throughout a five-year osteopathic degree has really assisted me in my development through, I guess, into the performance realm a little bit more away from medical.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, mate. Thanks for sharing. There's there's plenty there to unfold. Maybe maybe we'll go back to the decision to be an osteo. So you had some some injuries that you were working on, and you mentioned you saw some other practitioners at the time, and it was – who was the osteo? Nick, was it, from Collingwood, who's now at yeah. Collingwood Football Club, that sort of got you on the right track. So what was he doing differently to to some of the other osteos that sort of resonated with you and helped you to yeah,
1: get back to footy? I think 15 years ago there was maybe – a little bit of a more of a difference between an osteopath and a physiotherapist and a chiropractor. I think now, I think there's been a, a greater, I guess, collaboration in regards to what each of those allied professionals probably offer now uh, within the osteopathic realm and, and physio and chiro. But 15, 16 years ago, it was seen that, I guess, osteopaths were primarily manual health practitioners. And so their abilities to manipulate and to perform manual therapy was seen to be i guess at the at the elite end because from day 1 as an osteopath you're trained in in manual healthcare so we're, right. we're probably fortunate slightly separate to physiotherapists who throughout their their junior school of physiotherapy they they taught to to deal with cardio rehab they're taught to work in hospitals with geriatrics pediatrics for, but from an osteopathic perspective from day 1 it's a little bit about assessment clinical decision making and then manual therapy and and even in my degree when we studied there was there wasn't a huge amount of exercise rehabilitation education within the course so that I think was the big difference in me choosing to, to pursue the osteopathic course rather than physiotherapy. Also, the, the enter score at that stage was a little bit um, easier to get into. Physio was highly competitive. Yeah. So, if you didn't have a good year 12 score, you were pushing it uphill to oh, get yeah, in. Oh, but yeah. osteo, yeah. But osteo, interestingly, when I went through, you had to interview. So there was about 300 applicants uh, to RMIT and then they you sat an interview with one of the teachers and actually one of the fifth-year students. And they basically oh. asked you questions around what you knew about osteopathy because there are there are principles, I guess, that, that are the foundation for osteopathic medicine. And, and so uh, the other thing that you found is the dropout rate was substantially low in osteopathic medicine because you had people who were invested in wanting to pursue that as a career rather than possibly I'll just do this because it seems interesting. And a five-year course, is a, it's a substantial investment, both mentally and financially. So you found that a lot of people were really invested, which is probably what, what I saw as beneficial and, and why I chose that stream ahead of physiotherapy or, or chiropractic.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned your love for, for performance and, and sport right back in high school. So it sounded like that, that was something that was you were interested in when you started the osteo degree and you mentioned the investment that it does take and and that interview process, were you discussing, or did you have thoughts back then, that this is something I'm going to do and and work in elite sport or was it more just to hone your craft and uh, better understand the medical
1: side um, when you started, when you enrolled? No, elite sport was always the goal. I wasn't sure what the pathway would be, but it was always the goal and interesting. My sister, a couple of years ago, sent me, she was uh, trawling through old photo albums she she logged in. Is her name Trace? Uh, no, no, that's my wife. She's uh, <laughs> so just spying she in. My daughter, my daughter watching, but but yeah, I think COVID probably forced my my sister to look back through a few photo albums. She actually found a an interview with me in Year Twelve saying that I wanted to work in professional sport, and that was before I'd made the decision wow. to to be an osteopath. And so I think it was ingrained in my mindset from an early age, and then. Probably just been fortunate enough to have some great mentors and, and guiding figures in my life that have allowed me to to then continue to to pursue that uh, dream.
0: And back then, I'm not sure if Nick was still at Collingwood, but that uh, I know from my shorts did in AFL, like it's not as common for an osteo to be in. Physio seems to be the the common trend. Were you aware of that when you enrolled, and and it didn't matter? Like, did did you think potentially of is this a risk that I'm taking that it it might be harder to get into? AFL or was it more just elite sport that was your, your focus so it didn't matter if it was AFL? You know?
1: Yeah, I think I, w- I was well aware that it wasn't a common, I guess, pathway in professional uh, sport and in medical departments to have an osteopath, Bruce Duncan, who you would have worked with uh, and seen at Hawthorne, has probably been one that's been ingrained within Australian rules, football environments, probably the longest. And and Nick has been at Collingwood for a substantial amount of time. And then Dan Comerford, who I mentioned, actually worked at Collingwood as well, and then Port Adelaide and was part of the connection to me at Brisbane Lions 10, 11 years ago as well. So there's been a handful, and now you are seeing osteopaths actually employed on the tennis circuit, on the professional golfing circuit. So the pathway is now probably a little bit clearer for osteopaths as they're qualifying than what it was for me 12, 13 years ago. But there was still the platform there. And then I think what the main thing that you need to do then is just make sure that your skill set is broad enough and that you're good enough uh, at, at being an osteopath to then build the networks and the relationships to hopefully foster that pathway into professional sport. But it's definitely harder for osteopaths than than say someone with a physiotherapy background because uh, they have been ingrained in professional sport for so long. So it's not a, an easy path. There there are nowhere near as many positions, and and also with everything that's happened with COVID, roles within professional sport are. Uh, I know plenty of individual athletes and and plenty of osteopaths who are working in other sports such as triathlon, golf, tennis who are dealing with either individual sport or or there are other osteopaths that are possibly working at the semi-professional and amateur level as well as sport trainers and and the likes.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think you make a great point. there would be a few aspiring strength conditioning coach, osteos, um, physios that are potentially watching this podcast. So it's one thing to get your foot in the door, but it's another to sort of make the most of that opportunity. Externally, it sounds like you definitely have at your time at Brisbane and, and now at Melbourne on a, going into the ASCA conference um, speaking to colleagues a couple of years ago at Brisbane you were at the top of the list for most people in terms of listening to the reconditioning side of things how did you go about your work as a rehabilitation in, with with the players and did you how much of the osteo side of things did you bring into your reconditioning philosophy
1: yeah so my time at Brisbane quite a lot of- I was part of the medical team as, as an osteopath treating the players and, and also providing, I guess, exercise ideas from an injury prevention or, or mitigation perspective and worked really closely with Matt Haas and Alex Clark around that time. and We had a, a fantastic medical uh, crew in Shane Lemke and worked with Toby Watson who had been on the Tour de France and also Scott Fraser and, and Pete Lyon, these guys that have all been within professional sport for a significant amount of time. And so they really helped, I guess, develop my skill set from an osteopathic perspective and how that fit within the greater scheme of of our high performance department. And then I transitioned more into the performance aspect and, and working underneath. Uh, Matt Hass and Alex Clark as, as an assistant S&C on long-term athletic development programs. And then from there, when we had a changeover in, in staff is when I stepped into that, that rehabilitation space. And I actually initially continued to, to treat some of the players, but then take, took a step back from treating and just focused on the rehab and performance aspect of our program which initially was was a really tricky adjustment for me because when you've been ingrained in an environment where the athletes are used to having your manual therapy mm-hmm. skills and and now you're explaining to them no well that's not my role mm-hmm. as athletes can be oh, some- yeah yeah yeah, yep yeah, kind of- and so there there was there was a there was a, a change in mindset there that was required from myself but also from the playing group and, and Peter Blanche who took over as the head of medical was fantastic in that. And, and the message basically was that what I can do as a, as a performance and rehab coach is going to be much more valuable to the athlete than what I can do with my hands with them on the table. And that, that became a change in the culture at the Brisbane Lions Football Club as well is the more you can do off the table, the more you're going to be able to do on the field. And while manual therapy, I think, can be really valuable in certain environments, there's also an aspect that we know that increased training intensity, I guess increased training loads is going to to better prepare you for for performance within the context of Australian rules football. And so for me, transitioning into that rehab or reconditioning space, the medical education became a really good framework for for then applying it within a performance aspect. And, And that was really key at how we developed the reconditioning philosophy was it was a focus on performance it wasn't we weren't we didn't have a rehab program we had a reconditioning program and we were focusing on developing the athlete and not just returning an athlete from injury and that was a change in mindset both from from my perspective but also from the playing group's perspective and and our messaging and our language towards the players was really strong in that and and the team that's been at the that I was lucky enough to be a part of for the last four or five years was fantastic at, at having an aligned messaging of that which just made my job easier didn't matter um what the injury was or, or who the athlete was we we had a, an aligned message and, and a really great uh, program there
0: fantastic Aaron you've just asked if if we could ask questions for someone you guys definitely can so if you're tuned in, send through your question by hitting the question button at the bottom of your screen James Wolfenden you've just sent yours in we'll, we'll definitely find time for that at the end of the this chat so send them through guys yeah you mentioned that the performance focus and then you personally shifting from being in the table in the medical room to now being in the gym being on the field how did you personally find that that challenge from sort of having them being the players and the whole club seeing you as the medical practitioner now you're you're focusing on performance and reconditioning these guys is, is that something that you had past experience with them and, and were, um, just eager to get into there and, and when that opportunity arised you just jumped at it or was it something that you developed because of the, the role yeah did you uh, develop those roles as uh, those skill sets I guess?
1: I think there was an element of I'd I'd invested a lot of time and energy into becoming a an osteopath and trying to be the best osteopath I could and, and so when I came out into private practice all I wanted to do was treat as many people as I could to improve my skill set make sure that I was, a, I was a great clinical decision maker, could assess and, and could treat. And so I, I I guess I took that into the elite sport and high performance area and knew that I'd uh, done a lot of work in that. So I had a, a lot of confidence in my skill set there. And then when you start to step into that rehab and performance space, you kind of have the, the man or the woman on your shoulder, just kind of where you second guess yourself around. And And I have that. Consistent, comfortable level of anxiousness in everything I do. Still at the moment, in regards to, am I pushing hard enough? Am I have I chosen the right program to implement to accelerate this athlete as quickly as I can back to to performance and back to to field training? And then, how do I make sure that we mitigate the the risk of re-injury or subsequent injury? And so, there was that level of anxiousness around that transition. I knew I was my skill set was. Really good as an osteopath manually, and and what I could do there, and then it was a case of am I good enough as a as a strength and conditioning coach and a performance coach to take take that skill set and and not need my hands anymore to to focus on the, the exercise prescription, the the manipulation of training load, and I'd be lying if it was easy. My countless hours in front of a computer questioning whether or not I'd had the right program, questioning um, whether or not I'd prepared the athlete, and, and especially for some. For some of those key athletes, when they return for their first game after a long layoff, you you have that anxiety around you just want them to perform. and so yeah, there's definitely that, and I, and I still have a degree of that from time to time. I think it's as I said before, it's a comfortable anxiousness around. I, I do have I have confidence in knowing that I've got case studies of of successful reconditionings and, and successful return from injuries. so I have a framework there, but every athlete's different. Every injury is different, and, and every environment is different. So it's now it's about continually reviewing, refining, and and improving on on what we're trying to develop now at the at the Melbourne Demons. And I'm fortunate enough to have some pretty amazing practitioners around me to make sure that uh, we keep each other accountable, and that and that I lean on them for their expertise as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned some strong influences on your career. I know you've talked about it. A few already, but are there any other guys that stand out at the top top of mind that have helped you along the way, and it and how so if, if there is?
1: Yeah, well, before I well when I first started at the Brisbane Lions, I actually lived on the Gold Coast, and and I'd drive uh, up and back a couple of days a week. And while I was on the Gold Coast, was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Joseph Coyne and Gavin Pratt, who have both uh, recently been over at UFC Shanghai and are phenomenal practitioners and and. Uh, Cooney had a exercise rehab facility there on the Gold Coast where he had some of the elite Ironman and, and triathletes and then also had some Wallabies and, and NRL players that would come through there in their off season and he was kind of seen as a as a leader in that private facility space and so I was really fortunate to work alongside him and, and under him for a while on the Gold Coast there and and see how he went about it. And that was a fantastic facility. And Gavin Pratt as well, a fantastic practitioner. So those guys were awesome early on. And then the the group that we had at the Brisbane Lions were just fantastic in, in my early development. And still spend a lot and still communicate with them. And then from from an other mentor perspective, it was about acknowledging where I guess my gaps were in my knowledge. And trying to learn from guys in the field or girls in the field who had been in similar environments or, or I knew were doing successful things within high-performance sports. So Ross Smith and, and the, the guys at the AIS went in there and, and spent a little bit of time uh, just watching how how he went about working with long-term rehab athletes. And then Ben Serple when he was at the Brumbies, fortunate enough to have some great practitioners at the Broncos and QAS as well in, in Brisbane and Chris Caviglio and Jeremy Hickmans. and 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 then the group that we've We've more recently had through the the Brisbane Lions in Damien Austin, Dirk Spitz, Peter Blanche. So these guys, Blanche was just been a fantastic mentor for me, and then yeah, just been really fortunate in that space to have some great people around me. And then with athletes' performance early on in my career at Loch and Phil Merriman and I all did the same athletes' performance mentorship at Richmond Football Club, and it was led by David Joyce, and that that would have been. 10 years ago. And so also to, to lean on those yeah, two cool. guys as, as part of my career has developed. Matt Tui was even on that, who's been at the Newcastle Knights. So, yeah, I've just been really fortunate to be able to be surrounded by some great minds and people that I feel comfortable, I guess, challenging me in, in how I apply some of my principles and philosophies to, to develop the best program possible. And yeah, it's just been a, a great asset for me in my development.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That's yeah, amazing amount of people that have helped you along the way. With when you're reading a research article and you and you, you find an area of that research interesting and you're looking at implementing it, what would be sort of your filter process? Would you go to like a mentor like the guys that you've mentioned? Yeah, how, how would you filter in what's what's applicable in the practical sense in elite sport to what you read? Mainly yes. for the
1: strength yeah, for strength conditioning coaches and medical practitioners that are listening. So probably my first one is identifying in, in the environment that I'm working on what what has possibly been a growth area for us. And so if that's a particular injury, if it's a particular injury type, if it's a particular injury mechanism, and that would be, I guess, my starting point to start to look at research articles. And then if, if possible, it's great to actually speak to the researcher and, and the guys at ACU are being fantastic in And Dave Opar, Ryan Timmons, and Jack Hickey, and and even Maddie Bourne in regards to exploring different aspects of rehabilitation and and, strength and conditioning and so initially that's probably my filter is what's what's the growth in the environment that I'm in whether that be from an injury perspective or it may also be from a, a performance perspective so let's use training load as an example and, and acute spikes based on a shorter pre-season condensed training periods and and so initially it may you know because the issue with a lot of research articles is the actual research may have been done 12 to 24 months prior to the article coming out so it's actually when you chat to the researchers who performed it by that stage they may have developed other hypotheses or or actually have uh, greater insights into that initial Mm. research study so um, chatting to guys like Paul Tafari and Rich Johnston around training load and condensed periods and and leaning on other sports that that have been exposed to that sort of environment before, it's not about how you can and take that from one environment and just dump it into yours, but it's about how can you learn from that to possibly refine how we are doing, uh, what we're doing at, at the Melbourne Demons or, or the Brisbane Lions or whatever environment you're involved in, rather than trying to change your entire framework, because the one thing that I saw at Brisbane in, in my nine to ten years there was, was three different head coaches, a couple of different GMs, two different high-performance managers. And any time there, there is some change within your organisation, you tend to have a change to your injury profile and to to your your organisation and your culture as well. So it's not uncommon to see a a spike in certain types of injury associated with a change in gameplay or a change in game style or even a change in conditioning philosophy. And so Mm -hmm. it's just trying to evaluate how resilient your athletes are to withstand that change versus trying to change everything at one time because at the end of the day, a skill is king and the game is king and, and we need to respect that. So if we're trying to change everything else within the performance aspect and losing sight of, of what is actually key, which may be, it's it's great if you've got the, the best strength and power program or the best conditioning program, but if your athletes can't hit a target or kick a goal, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's winning. winning winning, solves all problems.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point. The stability of an environment is so important and, and working together as a team to see how you can integrate optimal practice and, and whether a small little 1% change is going to really make a big difference in the in the grand scheme of things. So that's great advice, mate. Thanks for that. You mentioned also a little bit earlier how you over time you've topped up areas – of whatever you would call it, weaknesses or areas that you haven't had ex- experience, how important is it to get where you've got to in elite sport on also topping up your strengths? Like that seems to be a trend more the, when coaches or athletes are talking about from an athletic point of view. But obviously as a practitioner, you, along the way you do need to be quite a generalist, it seems, for those that have been around long enough, they've, they've, like yourself, been in the medical room, they've been on the in the gym floor, on the field. At what point in your career do you start also topping up what are your top three traits as a practitioner?
1: Yeah, so I think the, the key initially is I was hired at the Brisbane Lions to be an osteopath. So the, the first priority is be as good as an osteopath as I can be and make sure I'm elite in that area. And then what are the aspects that I think are going to make me more employable or better at my role moving forward? And so for me, it was using the people around me in, in the, the Lions environment early on. Uh, and some of my mentors, to kind of better identify I guess my growth areas and so from a performance and strength and power prescription perspective, it, there was a little bit of that. but then it was also from an assessment perspective, leaning on the physios around me to make sure that my assessment techniques were good enough to be in a game day role, even though I was never going to be a game day physio because that just wasn't wasn 't my role, so that was the initial area and then, as i 've transitioned on. For me, especially in the rehab space, it's understanding which areas I think I I know really well. And then more recently, I've probably chosen to possibly do some talks or presentations on that area so that I critically analyze what I do, uh, why I do it and how I do it. And then you have to present that to your peers. And it's a great way of, I guess, having a bit of filter on exactly what you do, but then also those discussions at seminars, workshops, conferences like I had with yourself a couple of years ago at ASCA you start to further analyse what you believe you do well, but then possibly what other aspects you can continue to, to work on. And, and so I, I definitely in the last three to four years have have used seminars, workshops and, and conferences as a platform for that to, to help build my com- confidence in my knowledge and hopefully, I guess, build my continued knowledge base. And then it's also the unique nature of, of working in Uh, rehab you sometimes deal with injuries you haven't dealt with before so then it's starting to to reach out to people who maybe have more experience than you in that area to to reach out to possibly experts in certain other sports that maybe deal with that that injury as a as a commonality within that and then more recently it's probably about I guess the questions I've asked myself is how can I make the the people around me even better and, and how can I facilitate them in their role? So so now coming into the Demons, it's more so about how can I continue to to make Burjo's job easier? How can I continue to make Watsy's job easier? How can I uh, continue to help our head of sports science, Dave Regan? And, and so it's a little bit of taking a step back and, and seeing how I can facilitate the function of our department. And so I've probably spent a little bit more time in in that I guess leadership space or or, or the motivational questioning in, in regards to what is it that we do well and, and what can we continue to refine.
0: Fantastic and you mentioned working on like your reconditioning phase and, and focusing on performance rather than rehab uh, and how that was quite impactful in the Brisbane Lions for those whether it be developing footballers that may have just had an injury and are, and are currently in rehabilitation what, what are some things you've seen over time that trends when rehab doesn't go well that you try and make sure that athletes understand early days when they're in rehabilitation or re- re- reconditioning
1: yeah. things? I think where possible, it's getting the athlete to start early. And that may, if we're talking about soft tissue injuries, that can tend to be quite early. It can be day one post-injury, but it's understanding that movement is medicine and, and the athlete will get lots of confidence out of being able to to move and move early. And so where possible... Trying to, to have that as as one of your key philosophies, I think, is important. And that, that even goes for possibly bone injuries and tendon injuries as well. There is always something you can do, so focus on on what the athlete can do and whether that's from a cross-training perspective, a, a strength perspective. It's really important for for their psychological motivation as well. And I think that's the area that I would say developed the most in in the last five years is managing the psychosocial environment around the athlete and around injury and I think that's as powerful as having um, the best S&C program around them I think if you can um, have them motivationally invested and have them engaged in every aspect of the program both uh, in their reconditioning but then also the the bigger picture of the program of the actual football performance program how they're ingrained in team training in team meetings uh, and those aspects is super powerful so those would be some of the key components and just looking at how you use cross-training how you use strength prescription to maintain a high chronic training load from from an RPE-based perspective so that you are maintaining good work capacity development and and see it as an opportunity. If If a guy has been, or a girl has been told that they're they're just not strong enough or they're just not fit enough use that as motivation for the athlete use that as as a framework for the program that you're developing and and that's how you'll get investment from them but it's also how you they'll be able to demonstrate to the coaches what they've worked on while they've been away from the main group and I guess don't don't also don't get too caught in in just what their weaknesses are because majority of people are recruited into elite sport for their strength and their weapon. So make sure you continue to refine their weapon as well as filling the gaps around them.
0: And a similar question when it comes to prevention. So for for young developing footballers out there that maybe don't have a strength conditioning coach, what would all be your top three things that you think are really important
1: for for footballers to make sure they're doing uh, developing footballers. Oh.
0: Doesn't have to be tough,
1: training very, con- but just, yeah, uh, important, consistency. Yeah, is, consistency is key. So maintaining uh, consistent running exposure, consistent high speed and sprint running exposure, but also making sure you have consistent skill exposure. I, I think sometimes we can get caught up in oh, I need to get fitter, so I'm just going to run. But making sure that you're exposed to the skill development aspect is is key from an injury prevention perspective. I think. The research is pretty clear that there are a couple of valuable exercises if you don't have strength and conditioning advice that performing a Nordic once a week, performing some adductor strength Copenhagens or, or other variations once a week can have a, a benefit on maintaining tissue resilience. And then something as simple as the FIFA 11 Plus as a as a general warm-up perspective, those three that you could implement without much exercise prescription knowledge and know that you, as long as you maintain training consistency within the context of your sport and those three aspects, obviously some form of strength exposure would be beneficial, but you probably need some educated advice around the sport that you play in that context, but those those would be my key recommendations.
0: Love it. Well, that's it for me. I'll, I'll hand over to the guys that have been watching. We'll start with... Coach James Wolfe, were there any gaps in your own knowledge that you found since you took the osteopath compared to the physiopath? And if so, how did you go about bridging those gaps?
1: Yeah, so I think, as I mentioned before, the in in my osteopathic degree there was minimal exercise prescription and exercise education, so that was a definite um, gap in my knowledge early on and and so towards the back end of my degree and and then the the initial stages of working in private practice, I just spent a heap of time on educating myself in that space. And so that was doing professional development courses like FMS, like athletes performance mentorships and and the ASCA education components as well. So that was probably the the biggest gap in that space. The other component was possibly taping and strapping just for unique injuries. I think the general ankle and, and shoulder, but then you have uh, more complex injuries and, and taping techniques that yeah, some experienced physiotherapists have adapted over time. And so that was more so being ingrained in an environment. And and while I was working at Brisbane, I was also contracting to Queensland Sports Medicine Centre that had 23 physiotherapists that had worked with the Wallabies at Olympics. And so we had a one hour PD every week and, and the topic changed. And so that became a really great learning experience for me from from those physiotherapists.
0: Awesome. Good question, James. And this one's from Aaron. It's also a long one. So others, strength and conditioning aspects, what else do you think osteopaths can provide for footy players? Uh, He's just graduated as an osteopath and has always been a dream of his to find uh, himself in a football environment. He's AFL obsessed and was introduced to osteopathy five years ago by himself and and like to one day go down a similar path and help elite athletes perform at their best.
1: Yeah, it's a good one. So I think, as I mentioned before, making sure you're you're elite at your osteopathic assessment, clinical decision making, your, your your treatment skills, your ability to change pain, whether that via a manual technique or whether it be via education, and then your initial acute injury prescription. Those are going to need to be your your one wood. Then developing uh, your S&C knowledge around reconditioning from a running perspective and understanding the different aspects of MAS, aerobic capacity, high-intensity training, I think is important if you're wanting to, to progress into elite sport. But making sure that your, your initial assessment, knowing the key components of your osteopathic medicine is key initially. Fantastic,
0: thanks, Owen. Thanks so much for your your time, mate. We'll wrap it up. What are you What are you most excited about for to the rest of the year, two thousand twenty one? What's on the horizon for you?
1: Oh, we've just had our second daughter, so actually now that we've moved to Melbourne and start to feel like it's it's home, it's just about enjoying uh, what Melbourne has to offer, I guess. We're, we're, we're about to come into our third round of the AFL, so I'm just excited for, for what we're building at, at the Demons. We've got a fantastic performance and medical team, so it's just exciting to, to be a part of that from a... Uh, Personal perspective, now that COVID's kind of subsided somewhat, uh, yeah, workshops and hosting some workshops in this year in Melbourne and Sydney predominantly around accelerated reconditioning strategies and, and continuing to, I guess, share my knowledge across the wider community. I think I've been really fortunate to learn from others. So now my role within what I can provide back to the osteopathic and the strength and conditioning community is is part of my knowledge, and, and hopefully some people can learn from that. But initially it'll be family, get that work-life balance, and then it'll be how we can continue to, to, to help up-and-coming SNCs and and allied health professionals.
0: Fantastic, and, and where's the best place to go to to book in for those workshops and and find out um, when those seminars
1: come up? So that'll be on the Athletic Approach Instagram. Once they start to, at the moment, there's there's nothing advertised on there, but yeah, they'll they'll slowly start to drip feed through there. So if you if you keep an eye on that, you'll you'll see information there.
0: Fantastic. Awesome, and Thank you so much again, mate. I really appreciate your time as well as you, you know, sharing all your experiences and, and stories as well. You know, it's been amazing to have someone on with your expertise. So thank you so no. much, mate.
1: Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks for everything you're doing for the, the S&C uh, community and the, the coaching community. It's a great asset to everyone. So enjoy the rest of your Easter.
0: Appreciate it. You too, mate. Enjoy your Easter and, yeah, go Dees. Cheers. Catch you, mate. Thank you for listening, guys. If you uh, enjoyed the episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram. You can watch back our full chat on the IGTV. And we post a new podcast every Monday. So feel free to uh, subscribe. We're on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. And every Monday we upload a new podcast. So hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for your questions as well. And for the developing footballers out there that want to work with Prepare Like a Pro, click the link in our Instagram bio where we've got online training programs as well as information about all our AFL experienced strength and conditioning coaches who can work one-on-one with us, both in the gym and on the field, as well as online. So head over to our link in our Instagram. Thanks, guys. All the best. Have a great Easter.